Sardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. If you are a regular listener to Fraudology and listen typically on the week that these episodes come out, you're used to the regular cadence of Tuesdays being interview days and Thursdays being solo episode days. This week, we're going to switch it a little bit. So just giving you a heads up, don't worry, uh, that I will have an interview with a really great guest on Thursday's episode. But today I wanted to do something a little different where I'm doing a solo episode and really talking about Black Friday and some Cyber Monday, uh, as well as just retail fraud in general, kind of a checking in with retail fraud. I try to mix it up a little bit. Um, there's all different kinds of e-commerce companies. There are also a lot of people that listen to the podcast who are in financial services, whether it's for a financial institution or a fintech or others. But because we are now in December, because it is the peak season for retail, uh, I wanted to dedicate this episode to that. And first, I'll provide a little bit of a recap or an update on this year's Black Friday Cyber Monday. I did make a bit of a prediction on November 9th's episode, and we'll check in with how I did there with my prediction. And honestly, predicting fraud is like predicting the weather. So you know, while you can get used to the signs and have as much experience as you, know, you can have and think you know what's going to happen, don't always get it right. So we'll talk about uh, if that happened or not, and if so, why or why not. Uh, there's been a few articles recently about refund claims fraud. And that is a topic I have talked about off and on since the beginning of this podcast. Uh, it's something I've been talking a lot about over the last three and a half years, because that's really when it started was uh, when we really acknowledged that this was coordinated and it was intentional fraud. And that was in March of 2020. And uh, this podcast started later that year. So been talking about it off and on, but there's been a few articles recently about it and some new information as far as if it is considered a prosecutable offense or not. And so I wanted to dive into that as well. So that those are the topics for today's episode. And I'll try not to have it be too long, but also want to give as much information as possible. So before giving an update on this year's Black Friday, Cyber Monday, I'm just going to give a little bit a recap of what happened last year. If you have been listening to the podcast since last year, you learned about the master manipulators when I had Shoshana Marini on the podcast last year around this time to really talk about what had happened because it had never happened before. Typically up until last Black Friday and Cyber Monday, which for those of you that are in other parts of the world, fortunately or unfortunately for you, I'm sure you also know what Black Friday Cyber Monday is, but it used to be the kickoff for holiday shopping in North America. Uh, now it's, I don't know, I would say it's more like the middle part. I think that especially online sales have really started for the holidays, the first of November, but traditionally that is when 
you know, people start to think about shopping for the holidays. And there are a lot of holidays in the winter uh, for a lot of different uh, religions or uh, cultures. And so that's really why it gets hyped up. But it's also just marketing ploys, as we all know, trying to encourage lots of shopping, whether it's for gifts or for yourself. And I think that a lot of other countries have similar dates. They just don't call them Black Friday and Cyber Monday. But so when I'm talking about them, kind of talking about that weekend, the last weekend of November. And so up until last year, we really didn't see more fraud. And I talked about this more on the episode on November 9th, but we would see kind of the same rate of fraud as we would see on any other day. It's just that there would be so many, so much more hay in the haystack, so to speak. If you're trying to find needles in the haystack, there's just a bigger haystack. And so it was harder to find the needles. And often what happens too is, you know, depending on the type of transaction risk monitoring systems that different companies use, a lot of shopping behavior uh, when there are big sales can look risky to those systems. Uh, whether it's because of the type of sale that the marketing department has come up with, or it's the fact that they're you know wanting to save on shipping. And I, I do this for my sister's family. They live a few states away. And so I will just order gifts to be sent to her house. Well, that traditionally could look like fraud. And so depending on the system, how much of a legacy system it is, that might look really suspicious because my billing address is in one state in the US and I'd be shipping it to another state. And my sister has a different last name because she took her husband's last name. So there's that's just one very minor example of how more orders can be caught up in the queue uh, and look like fraud and need to be assessed as if it were fraud or not. But usually they they weren't. But then last year happened and we had a coordinated targeted attack on dozens of the biggest brands uh, in e-commerce all at one time. Uh, They started to test in October and November on some of the systems to see if their hypothesis would work as far as address manipulations and that they would also adapt to any countermeasures of fraud prevention that were put in place. So that was why Shoshana and I, well, really Shoshana gets the credit for this, uh, dubbed this group the mass manipulators. You know, I think a lot of companies internally create names for fraud rings. I think it's a really good idea because if you're doing it right, then you don't have to say, hey, remember that one group that was doing this and this and they were buying this and they were sending it to this and they were using this kind of device and blah, 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 blah. You can just say, oh, this is part of this group uh, and everyone in the team will know what you're talking about. But we generally haven't really named a large group externally because that takes a lot of data overlap. But in this case, I got over 50 of the biggest retailers in the world together all on a Zoom call to talk about this group and talk about their methodologies and some of the things that I will never be sharing on the podcast that made them, you know, know, made us all know that this was the same group. And we just never see anything like that, not just at all, but especially on Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And, you know, really think what happened was that they were taking advantage of the fact that the haystacks were large. And so they could really hide even easier. And then on top of that, they attacked two of the largest data verification providers directly. So knowing which providers you know companies use is now so much more simple than it ever was before. Two of the easiest reasons. I mean, we used to say, well, the only way they can know is if your company is you know featured on your vendor's website, and that used to be true. But now, because of GDPR, every company that you know ever has any customers within Europe or within the state of California as well for uh, the California um, privacy 
don't remember what it's called. I'm so sorry. But I hope people in California will forgive me for forgetting that acronym. Uh, oh, it's at the tip of my brain, but I don't want to say it wrong. So we're just going to move on. But companies have to disclose within their terms and conditions, which companies or which third party data providers are receiving customer information. And that goes for fraud. And so that gets listed in your terms and conditions. It's also often if you communicate with them via API, there are developer tools that can be used by even non developers to be able to see what APIs are being called out at the time of transaction or at the time of login. And so they can also see, okay, this is the order that they're calling out to these APIs. So that's how they can know which providers are being Well, last year, not only were they attacking the retailers directly with fraud attempts, but they also attacked two of the data providers with DDoS attacks. And that is with just a lot of traffic on the websites or on the servers, really, for those systems. And if you think about it, all of the third-party data providers' customers were already having their biggest shopping days of the year. So they were already putting so much data through. And then if there are bad actors on top of that that are trying to overload the system even more, it's probably easier for them than on a random Tuesday or a random Thursday, right? So they took those systems down. And what ended up happening was thousands of orders were pushed through that were fraudulent that weren't able to be verified with data providers to say, wait a second, that information doesn't go with that person, or that isn't the right address to the right email address, things like that. And so because of what happened last year, we were a little bit on edge already, right? Okay, what are they going to do this year? On top of that, uh, this year, a few of the bigger retail targets experienced more sophisticated attacks targeting their overall networks with session attacks and race condition attacks, um, AI bots as well. I talked about this much more extensively on November 9th, uh, in the episode that the title started with holiday shopping under fire. Um, my fear and others fear too. I mean, remember when I'm sharing stuff, it is never just my hypothesis or idea. It's just that I'm usually the one that can go on the record because I keep my sources and my friends top secret. Uh, they can't talk about fraud because of the companies they work for. So I do it for them in a lot of ways. And I take that responsibility really seriously, probably too seriously sometimes. But I'm never just on a whim saying, oh, this is what's going to happen or this is what I think is going to happen. I've double, triple checked it with so many people usually beforehand or always beforehand. Uh, I never want to talk out a term because again, I do take that responsibility seriously and I don't want uh, anyone to be upset that I said something that they wouldn't have said if they could. So because we were seeing those attacks in October and early November, Along with what happened last year at this time, you know, my fear and theirs, you know, was that these tests were being seen as dress rehearsals for Black Friday or Cyber Monday. I said that on that episode in November 9th, uh, Frank McKenna picked it up for his blog, Frank on Fraud, a couple weeks later. There were a few people who were a bit contrarian, especially on LinkedIn, that were going back to, you know, Black Friday, Cyber Mondays before 2022, uh, or retailers last year were experiencing if they, you know, it seems to be that the, and I don't know, I could be wrong, but the magic number for companies that are the biggest targets seem to be companies that process over $4 billion a year in e-commerce or more. And those are usually the companies that I end up talking with the most. And so when I'm talking about trends, oftentimes I'm talking about the biggest companies in the world. And if you work for a vendor, 
vendor and you don't really work with those companies, uh, you don't see those companies traffic, then of course, they're going to think that I'm crazy and and making it up. Uh, So, you know, there's always going to be people who want to be contrarian and say that's, you know, being hyperbolic, or that's being a fear monger. And that's just never my intent at all. But I do know that when the biggest companies in the world see something that Shortly thereafter, once they close those gaps, other companies of other sizes underneath them will be seeing the same thing, especially if they sell similar products. So that's one reason why I think it's important to share what the biggest companies experience because everyone else will experience it soon. And the second half of this episode focused on refund fraud will be one of the best examples of that. Or it is one of the best examples of that happening where the biggest companies experienced it three and a half, four years ago. And now it seems like some of the smaller, more niche e-commerce companies are experiencing this now too. So that's all the background. But you know, with all of my concerns and worry, and I was really staying close to my phone on Thanksgiving Day here in the US, as well as on Black Friday, it was pretty quiet, you know, all in all. And, you know, I had the biweekly call with retailers uh, just this last week, and I wanted to ask them before I went on the podcast and said anything. Um, That's why we didn't have, I didn't talk about this last week, because I wanted to be able to have that call with them and make sure that just because nobody really called me out of the blue and said, oh my gosh, what is happening like they did last year, I didn't want to assume that nothing had happened. And it's not that they didn't see any fraud at all. It's just that It certainly wasn't like it was last year, where it was just coordinated and constant and uh, coming from all angles and just, you know, targeted to specific companies, but dozens of them all at the same time. In this case, it kind of felt, you know, to them more like pre 2022 levels on this weekend. So we're not sure what to think. Some of the theories that were floated out were maybe these guys, these bad actors were so good at committing fraud this year that no one knows about the fraud yet. So maybe there's going to be a big chargeback surprise in January. Uh, That being the first thought that most people had is indicative of how skeptical or you know, cynical uh, those of us in fraud can be, but I think we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because it generally usually does. So that's that was kind of the first theory. Um, you know, maybe they're waiting to strike on another on an unassuming day. Uh, before the holidays or after. Maybe this group moved on to attacking companies outside of e-commerce. One of the things that didn't come up as an, a theory was maybe we just were so good that we got rid of them. And that's because, you know, given the tests that were experienced, you know, with AI bots, especially uh, in October and November by that handful of companies, those AI bots and that activity that was exploiting the vulnerabilities that the AI bots identified, they went away before they could be stopped. And so that's why there's just kind of this feeling like, well, we didn't actually find any way to stop them. Or maybe, you know, a couple of them did, but a couple of them didn't. And they just went away on their own. So we're worried that they're going to come back on another day. Uh, So that's why that theory wasn't floated. But it, it could be possible, right? And when you have faceless adversaries and adversaries that aren't, they're certainly not going to take my phone call, nor would I know what number to call. We have to guess, right? We have to do some predicting and just some reading of the tea leaves, so to speak. They're certainly not going to tell me what their plan is or any of 
you know, most of you that are listening, right? Also, there's so many different groups. It's not like they all work together as one, uh, like we try to do on this side. They, they definitely help each other here and there, but there's a lot of different types of groups too. And so there's some that are more organized than others. There's some that are state sponsored. There's some that, you know, are just one off people that are, you know, doing, it's just there's so many different groups. We can't always identify exactly what each one is going to do either. So there's only so much we can do, right? I mean, predictions are never going to be an exact science. But, you know, when we have warning signs and there's a possibility that something could happen, I'd much rather ring the alarm bell and be wrong than not say anything and be wrong. And if we're using the analogy of being, you know, someone who reports on storms or whatever else, um, you know, a meteorologist, a weather forecaster, whatever you want to call it. It's just, it's better to be prepared for a storm and have it avoid your house or your town than not be prepared at all and have it hit. So that's kind of what I've always gone off of on this. And I try not to really press the alarm bell or the red button or whatever we want to call it very often at all, because again, Fraud is very unpredictable and it impacts different types of companies in different ways. And, you know, sure, there's trends and things that we can see, but we don't, it's hard to know what's going to happen going forward. I do think that, you know, and I do participate and I'm really uh, grateful that Frank and Marianne asked me to participate with them in their annual uh, fraud predictions this next year. But I've already gone back and gone, huh, which ones were I, was I wrong about and why? And then wanting to be a little bit more accurate next year. So, you know, it's something that, Again, not an exact science, but certainly I think it is helpful for those who, you know, are really head down and only know what's happening at their company. It's good to know what's happening at other companies because sometimes it's something that you're not seeing now, but you might. And so if you start to see something that looks different, you know, down the road, you can go, oh, I wonder if it's that thing that was impacting other companies. But it certainly isn't like I'm trying to predict the future just for fun or anything like that. And I would just never want anyone to doubt my trustworthiness. But I also want to give and, you know, spread information when it seems warranted. And it, it can be a tough balance sometimes. But because I rang the alarm bell, so to speak, a couple weeks ago on that episode, and because, you know, there have been mention of the master manipulators throughout this last year, I wanted to make sure that I came back and circled back and explained what, you know, was and wasn't seen uh, by retailers this last year or this last Black Friday, Cyber Monday. And if they're seen again, I'll keep y'all posted because I know that there's also a lot of ripple effects too of other companies or types of companies, whether it be in financial services or delivery companies that also see those ripple effects from that large uh, fraud vector, or that large crime ring, that it's good for you to be aware of, you know, those activities too. Well, there's another prediction that uh, definitely is impacting retailers and continues to be. And I really wish I wasn't right about this one. Um, but I, uh, I sadly knew that we were looking at the next fraud vector when we started to see it, once we put pieces together. Um, and I think it's one of the first times that I've really like rung the alarm bell in a big way um, because I felt like knowing that this was going to be big. And that is with refund claims fraud, or the shorthand is to call it refund fraud. The reason why there's a lot of reasons why I think it's important to put the claims in there. Um, and I've talked about that in other episodes too, but it's really the refund claims process that is being exploited um, where a product has already been shipped out uh, and potentially been received by someone and they're claiming that they didn't get it or that it was damaged or that it wasn't, you know, that only one item in the box or in the order came or they're sending it back 
and saying, oh, I returned it to your company. But something happens between it leaving their address or you know leaving them and going to the warehouse where that item never actually comes back. And at the end of the day, what ends up happening is that the company is now out the product and out the money because they're giving a refund to that person who's made that claim. This is a claims process that has happened since the beginning of e-commerce and it's been a function of customer service and has never really needed the fraud department's oversight until the last several years. Um, If you want to hear background and just kind of more of the story of how and why the retailer collab group uh, that I work with started um, and also how and when we first discovered refund fraud, the episodes with Diane Anagogic Physic in April of this year, I think it was April 18th and 20th of 2023, uh, would be a great place to go back and listen. Diana was definitely part of that core group of merchants that I reached out to to say, hey, I've had several of you reach out to me and ask if anyone else is seeing this. Let's just get all on a phone call. And, you know, I don't know anything about this, but just you guys can talk about it, you know, because you may not know each other, but I know you. So I'll get you all on a call. And that morphed into a pretty tight group now. I haven't counted lately, but there's probably, I know there's over 50 enterprise retailers uh, that are on the distribution list for that call. Um, and they're on the invite list. And uh, we steadily have around 30 or 40 people show up um, every other week and talk about it. And while it started with refund fraud, we now talk about a lot of different types of fraud, like the master manipulators. But that was a type of fraud that as soon as we all put the pieces together, I think all of us went, oh, crap, this is this is bad. And knowing what little oversight and what little data and any information to be able to parse out to be able to identify the legitimate fraud or refund claims and the fraudulent refund claims were so lacking, especially back then, that we knew that this was going to be exploited to the 10th degree before much could be done about it. But I do think that to the credit of the group, that to everyone that just kept dialing in every other week, as long as we've had that call for three and a half years now, almost four years, I think they have stopped millions, if not billions of dollars of refund fraud, uh, just from you know the bigger companies sharing with the smaller companies what it looks like and what they're doing and, and what works and what doesn't work. And then also sharing, you know, I would, did some deep dives in Telegram and Discord groups uh, and had, you know, at least one really good source that had access to some of the private groups that were really talking about, you know, the behind the scenes and what they were really doing to be able to educate them on, hey, this is what's actually happening. I know, you know, you're saying what you're seeing on your end, but then here's a post or here's a tutorial or, you know, a how-to or whatever, about how they actually did it on their end. There were a couple orders, I think I've mentioned this before, but there were a couple orders where uh, fraudsters would put in like identifying information about an order. And I would send it over to the fraud manager of that company and say, hey, I'd be curious to know what it looks like on your end, because they're claiming that they did XYZ. Just kind of funny how... (laughs) It was really weird for a while there how I could really see both sides of the fence and how helpful that was. I think for all of us, it just speaks so highly of the importance of collaboration. But so, you know, the reason why I'm bringing up refund fraud now again, um, and I've been trying not to bring it up too much because I know it's just, I feel like it's something that I could talk about in every single episode. And so maybe I don't talk about it enough because of that. Also, now that the you know cat is out of the bag that 
I uh, created a product or a module to help retailers and myself as well as inspired by Diana and everyone in that group on Specs platform or on Specs marketplace uh, for refund claims fraud. I just don't ever want to seem like a, you know, a walking commercial for it either. So that's why I've stayed away from it. But there's been a couple of articles that have been sent to me uh, about refund fraud recently that I think make it important to bring it up again, uh, because it's a little bit of a development that I'm really happy to hear about. Uh, But just wanted to give a little bit of background. If you haven't heard of refund claims fraud, or if you haven't, you know, heard me talk about it in the last little while, it's kind of frustrating that we started sounding the alarm about this problem over three years ago. And it's just now kind of being taken seriously. That means that a lot of money had to be lost before retailers could get, you know, approved to designate resources to this or to be able to really get to the root of the problems. And, and there's a lot of retailers that still haven't. When you think about the biggest targets of new fraud, it's going to be the companies that have the highest security systems, right? The highest level of fraud protection. So it's going to be the biggest companies because they're the biggest target. So Walmart's the Amazons of the world. And the reason why I'm naming them is because they're named in one of these articles. Uh, but I don't think it's, you know, a surprise that they're two of the biggest targets for, you know, any new type of fraud like refund claims fraud. But then it trickles down. And as those companies get better at their defenses, then refunders move on to smaller companies. And that's that's you know why I think it's important to share what the biggest companies see, but it, and it's important to have those companies in the room with other merchants so that they can share, but also so that they can learn from other companies too. I never want it to be that they're the only ones sharing information, and I uh, pride myself in hosting so many collaboration calls of knowing how to make sure that they're not just teaching everyone. There was that one Wall Street Journal article that Diana and I were both quoted in. I want to say it was in 2021, maybe, um, and was grateful for that. However, it was frustrating to me that the uh, journalist needed to name drop and you know, wasn't going to run that article without uh, being able to say names of companies that were seeing it. And of course, they named, you know, three of the biggest retailers in the world of like, they're seeing it. It's like, well, of course they are. Everyone is. I understand that that's part of the game there. Um, And honestly, the journalist, you know, I don't have, I'm just a one person company. I don't have any time to have a a PR. I don't have a PR department. I don't have time to reach out to, you know, bigger publications, but they reached out to myself and Diana, um, as well as one other person who wasn't able to be quoted um, based on their company policies about being in an article because we presented to NRF, um, the National Retail Federation. I knew that year that we needed to get out to as many organizations as possible and do a lot of presentations. Uh, It was COVID that year, so they were all virtual, which was good because I probably wouldn't have been able to travel to everywhere that we spoke. But, you know, and I, we did all of that for free. It was just trying to get, it was like PSAs, right? Public service announcements, just get this information out that this is happening because it's been weaponized. This, you know, refund claims process has been weaponized. And so many people aren't going to realize it uh, because, you know, at least, and if you listen to the call or the interview I had with Diana back in April, you'll know that at first everyone thought it was just a delivery company problem. You know, is this only happening to people using UPS or USPS or FedEx or, you know, anything else? Nobody really thought at first that this was what it was. And so that's why I thought it was important to get the word out. But now it's, you know, getting out into other spaces and even bigger. And this is what I really wanted to highlight today is on the 
the plus side, the U.S. Department of Justice has confirmed that not only is you know refund claims fraud fraud, but it is a prosecutable offense. And that's huge because for the longest time, the refunders, the people who are doing this type of fraud would say, well, it's really a gray area. It's not really fraud because we're using our own payment methods or we're using prepaid cards. We're not stealing anyone's card. So we're not stealing from companies. I could obviously argue, yes, it is fraud, but we honestly didn't know for the longest time if it could be prosecutable. And they certainly didn't think so. And then there's the other elephant in the room, right? That most companies don't do all the work that they need to do to have fraud groups be prosecuted. But I'll talk about that in just a minute. I just wanted to highlight a couple of things from these two articles, and then I will dive into some best practices. uh, If you want to take advantage of the fact that the Department of Justice is really paying attention to this right now, as I think that if you're in retail, you probably should. So the first article is kind of just an overall general article, um, as far as the fact that federal prosecutors have unveiled how a well-coordinated refund for scheme has inflicted multi-million dollar losses on prominent online retailers such as Walmart and Amazon. So this one is not talking about a specific uh, case, but just saying that federal prosecutors are unveiling how these fraud rings work. And they focus on one particular fraud group. There are so many of them, but this one is Artemis Refund Group. They have been charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud involving a sophisticated operation that initiated false refunds or returns for e-commerce orders. And I forgot to mention this article is in marketrealist.com and the title is Multi-Million Dollar Online Refund Fraud Hits Retail Giants Walmart and Amazon. It's a very similar headline as the Wall Street Journal article that we were in like two years ago, but that's okay. And I will obviously put links to the full articles in the show notes. These are always important to, I think it's always important to share these with your leadership to say, hey, first of all, we're not the only ones who are experiencing this. Second of all, this is what the bigger companies are doing about it. And maybe this is what we should do too. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but SPEC's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. SPEC lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of SPEC's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So the verbiage of this was really weird to me. I had to read this part a couple times. They say that they're recruiting legitimate shoppers. So ARG Artemis Refund Group recruited legitimate shoppers to make purchases, request refunds, and through various methods, retain the refunded item for personal use or resale. The group meticulously gathered order details from shoppers and utilized this information to interact with customer service departments on the shopper's behalf. I think they use of the word recruited is misleading. No, they advertise their services to people who hired them for this. Maybe at first these shoppers were naive and didn't realize that this was, that they were defrauding a retailer or that they were lying or misleading a retailer. But I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of these advertisements for refunding services. I never would call them recruitment. That's just my perspective. And I do think that words matter and and the type 
of you know, ways that we describe these things matter. So I wanted to just clarify that. Uh, then they go on to, you know, explain the way that they profited from it. So when a retailer approved a no return refund, ARG would take a percentage of the refund while the customer retained the item. This fraudulent activity targeted instances where the cost of the refund exceeded the value to the seller. In cases requiring a return shipment, ARG would send a counterfeit package. When a replacement was provided by the retailer, ARG received the shipment, sold it, and shared the proceeds with the shopper who kept the original item. So what they're explaining there is what is often called FTID or fake tracking ID. There are so many different types of FTID, and that is really the type of exploitation of making it look like you're returning an item back to the warehouse, but you're not. I go into all of that in the refund fraud training courses that I offer, um, you know, privately to companies, or if there's a group of people that want to take it together, you don't have to know each other, but just, you know, if more than five companies reach out and say that they want to do it, then I'll give a discounted price to, you know, each person, but it's not something I'm going to share publicly. Uh, not all of the reason, not all the ways for FTID. And it's mostly because this is a public platform and they don't need to know what we know. Certainly not all the details. There's also a lot of insiders. I remember I talked about this months ago, the innies or the insiders that were being recruited, they name one of the retailers. So I'm going to read that, but I did not name them, uh, even though I knew they were one of several that were being advertised uh, for this. So this part says, uh, shockingly, ARG also managed to infiltrate the ranks of these retail giants by recruiting company insiders, including staff from Walmart's returns department. This insider assistance further boosted the success rate of their scam. Of course it did. I didn't pull the episode information on that one, but I know that I think it was over the summer or at the beginning of the summer I talked about it. Um, if you search insider or any, you'll probably find it. Um, thousands of shoppers effectively utilized ARG's scheme to secure items at discounts of up to 85%, often for high value products. A government informant, for example, acquired a uh, $541.41 Kate Spade, Kate Spade handbag in February using ARG's tactics. And in May, the scheme was employed to acquire a MacBook Pro from Amazon. It's not that that was the only time that was used to do it, just that that's what's, you know, within these uh, documents. The extent of the fraudulent activity was staggering with ARG maintaining a spreadsheet to organize their numerous transactions. This criminal enterprise led one of the defendants to rent a storage unit to accommodate the abundance of returns. So it goes into the fact that it's well into millions of dollars that were lost. And um, then they talk about how you know, the, the extent of online fraud has become increasingly evident as platforms like Reddit and Telegram. Telegram host numerous groups openly exchanging tips on how to execute such fraudulent activities. I would say that the majority of public posts are more the advertisements for services like this. They're not sharing the specifics uh, anymore. They did towards the beginning of this, like three or four years ago, but they really aren't anymore because they want to be hired to do it for people. So they're not going to share all of their secrets uh, when they want you to hire them and pay them, you know, 15 to 20% of the order value. Um, just a little bit of a clarification there. Uh, then they go on to say there are at least six subreddits dedicated to this illegal behavior, including Illegal Life Pro Tips 2, which boasts over 100,000 followers. That group talks about a lot of types of illegal life pro tips. So, I mean... Again, understood why they use it, but um, these platforms provide specific advice tailored to individual retailers. Eh, sort of, but um, really, if you want the specific, specific information, you need to be vetted and you usually need to pay to be part of a cook 
group within Discord. But I understand why they you know put that in there or why it may look like there are tips uh, that will get away with it. But you certainly won't get away with it at you know retailers that have been experiencing this for years if you go off of any public tutorials. Even a lot of the refund books or how to you know ebooks that are floating around. Those are all things that at least the largest merchants have have all seen and reverse engineered to identify those behaviors. It also has an impact on gig workers. And I think I mentioned this before, but uh, delivery drivers, many of whom are gig workers, often find themselves dealing with customer complaints about missing or damaged shipments, and they take the brunt of the fraud's consequences. Uh, Then it goes on to say this massive online refund fraud scheme has exposed the vulnerabilities in e-commerce systems, causing substantial financial losses to major retailers and underscores the need for improved safeguards to protect against such scams. As investigations into the ARD and similar groups continue, retailers are left to grapple with the fallout of this extensive criminal enterprise. So it was broad talking about all of that, but I do think that, uh, you know, it's always good when it's talked about uh, outside of our little fraud bubble uh, and also good when prosecutors are saying, hey, we want to go after these guys. Doesn't exactly say that they're doing it, but it says that they, you know, are trying to and that's important. It's a good first step. Um, But this next one actually talks about a specific person who was charged. And um, this one, I actually received or saw this one first before the other one and uh, maybe a week or so before and was really encouraged by this because it's a specific case. So the headline of this is University of Miami student charged by the Department of Justice in a $3.5 million fraud scheme. So University of Miami student, he's 21 years old, Matthew Frederick Bergwall, was charged by the U.S. Department of Justice for his alleged role in a multi-million dollar fraud scheme. Uh, Bergwall, also known as MXB, and co-conspirators executed a fraudulent tracking scheme called FTID between December 2021 and April 2022. So that's really just five months. And they're saying that they it was over $3.5 million. I believe that. The scheme targeted a multinational shipping, receiving, and supply chain management company by gaining unauthorized access to compromised employee accounts. This was also talked about in that any episode as well as others where this was something that, you know, really was taking off once retailers were starting to identify some of indicators of intentional refund claims fraud versus, you know, someone who has a legitimate claim. And they would either, you know, recruit insiders like the other article mentions, or they would seek out compromised employee accounts and be able to do different types of manipulations within the system to be able to benefit them or uh, people that hired them to do refunds, right? So marking things that are uh, checked in when really they weren't or uh, marking things as lost or stolen, even if you know they really weren't, things like that. Sometimes if they gain employee access, depending on you know, the type of access that employee has, they can just start issuing refunds for people, right? Just give me your order number and I can issue a refund through the system. Uh, It's scary, but it's possible. So in this case, they, um, you know, targeted a very large shipping, receiving and supply chain management company uh, and were able to manipulate their systems from inside. 
False tracking information inputted for merchandise resulted in nearly 10,000 fraudulent returns, causing over $3.5 million in lost product and sales revenue for victim retailers nationwide. Bergwall allegedly purchased high-value items for himself, including a $41,000 Rolex President Day date watch, a $600 Team GHTO electric skateboard, a $350 Samsung 43-inch smart TV, uh, and an $80 pair of Reebok shoes. I'm sure there's a lot more, but that was in the charging documents, so I thought it was interesting. Uh, but then I'm sure he resold almost all of the rest. Charges against Bergwell include conspiracy to commit computer and mail fraud, as well as substantive mail fraud. If convicted on all counts, Bergwell faces a maximum penalty of 45 years in federal prison. So on my notes, I bolded and like underlined the actual charges of conspiracy to commit computer and mail fraud, as well as substantive mail fraud. Because if you're working with law enforcement that says, well, I don't think this is really fraud because they use their own credit cards or they used a prepaid card and they didn't steal someone else's card. You can reference those charges and say, well, in this case, this happened. So can you, you know, use that as a blueprint? No one should be having to reinvent the wheel if the wheel has already been created, so to speak. So that's why I think it's important to share that information because those articles make a very good case for something that I believe in as part of a holistic approach to fraud prevention. And I've talked about it before, but I feel like I know that a lot of you would love to be able to deploy this, but just don't feel like you have the resources. And so that's why I wanted to share these articles and share this information with you to say, hey, maybe this will help to say, look what Amazon and Walmart are doing. They're putting some effort into post-transaction investigations. They're looking at which orders are all connected to each other. And quite honestly, especially if you go back to 2020, 2021, and even the beginning of 2022, you can find all of the, a lot of the ones that are connected to each other because they didn't have to hide. If they didn't have to, if there weren't preventative measures in place, they didn't. And so you can find the ones that are connected fairly simply. And post-transaction investigations are just my passion for them. And, you know, because I've seen them really, really work for some very large companies. Um, and I, can't mention all of them, although, you know, two were mentioned in these articles. You know, that's why I've had my friend Eric Bowles on this podcast twice, once in June of 2022. And then again, in uh, just this past September 6th, uh, in 2023, um, because he's created two of the most successful post-transaction and, you know, investigations teams that then go on to prosecute cases. He, because of his work with the U.S. Secret Service prior to going into the private sector, and because he's done so much outreach to, I swear, like every federal agency in the U.S. and a lot of federal agencies, if not, if not all of them internationally, he has personal contacts. And that really helps the companies that he works with to be able to say, hey, I know who will take this case. I know who understands e-commerce fraud. I know who will take this case and will help us. And on top of that, as Eric shared in the most recent episode he was on in September, just one of those organized retail crime groups that he helped to prosecute, ended up providing his former employer restitution of over seven figures. That's huge. And this is why I just don't understand, right? Is that physical retail stores often have organized retail crime departments and often are working with law enforcement to prosecute. But for some reason in e-commerce, it just doesn't happen as much. It's seen as a not a good use of resources or that it doesn't have a good enough ROI. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I wish I could provide as many of the examples and real life examples that I know of, not even just 
for the cases that are prosecuted, but for the level of information that is being able to be fed back up into the fraud operations team or into the transaction risk monitoring system or into whatever tool you're using for refund fraud to say, hey, all of these are connected and we missed them, but here's what we should have saw. This is what we should have caught them for. So there's so many values. And if I can just put in a plug, Eric is you know, still accepting clients for his consultancy and he's open to talking about you know, full-time opportunities and he could not get someone better to start and found and lead a team like that. You just couldn't. And I say that as someone who knows people who has worked have worked for him um, at very different companies, as well as who he's reported to. So um, he's just absolutely stellar at what he does. And I really think it is a loss for those of us on the fraud prevention side, but really a gain for fraudsters, you know, whether it's financial fraud, or whether it's you know, other types of crimes, whether it be ransomware or pig butchering or others that, you know, fraudsters are lucky that he's on the sidelines right now or, you know, that he's available. So I want to shout out from the rooftops that any company would be lucky to work with him. And this would be a great opportunity for it. If you have seen significant losses due to refund claims fraud, there is no doubt in my mind that the same people are hitting you over and over and over again. If they found a vulnerability, they are going to exploit it until you close it. And if you don't know how to identify it, well, then they're just going to keep hitting you over and over and over again. And one of the only ways to make them stop other than, you know, the cat and mouse game, so to speak, of finding a vulnerability and closing it, which you should absolutely do. But it's so important to have consequences. The best deterrent in these groups, and I have read so many posts in so many of these groups over the last several years, the best deterrent for a specific retailer is when someone posts shit they prosecute or something similar to that because it's still so rare and just only really happening from the biggest companies that they usually just move on to smaller organizations with no defenses or no investigations teams. So they usually just stay away from that company altogether once they realize, oh crap, these companies you know, they prosecute. And that's one reason why some companies, you know, like Amazon and Walmart, and I don't know if this was their intention or not in that article, but I know, you know, that StubHub did this and others have too, where they'll actually send out a press release and say, we're working with the FBI or the Secret Service or, you know, Interpol. And we, you know, are prosecuting these cyber criminals for stealing this much money from our company. And those do the rounds. They don't just do the rounds on our side of the fence. They do it on their side too. And that's no better deterrent. It's, you know, think of just how many uh, dressing rooms you've been in over the years with that little sticker that says, you know, we prosecute shoplifters. Well, this is like times 10 because it's so rare. Uh, It doesn't happen as often. So because it's on online and I think that that's ridiculous, but that's, you know, a whole other rant. And uh, yes, well, I maybe had a little bit of a rant or a mini rant. I could go on on this tangent for a long time. And so I will stop myself. But uh, what I wanted to just share as we wrap this up is, you know, it's important to first be able to define and track the different types of refund claims fraud, as well as what it looks like for your company. And then even most important is what are those clues or what are those identifiers that really show these are intentional and these are not because there are a lot of a lot of use cases and genuine, you know, legitimate customers who are calling your customer service team and saying, 
hey, I didn't get this item. It got stolen from my porch or it never arrived. That happened to me just a couple weeks ago. It was actually the first time I've had to make one of those claims in, I don't know, since knowing about refund fraud, where I just didn't get my package. And thankfully, in this case, the tracking showed that too, and it never said it was delivered. So it was easier. But you know, in these cases, it can be really hard to know which ones are legitimate and which ones aren't. And so companies are like, well, we don't want to, we don't ever want to, you know, upset or insult our good customers. So we're just not going to do anything. And I can tell you, and it's not just, you know, my one solution or module, there are at least two others that I know of that are fairly, you know, are, are effective. Uh, there are certainly some that aren't, but um, there are, you know, a couple of companies that have put their heads together to find, you know, unique ways to identify these because you can't identify them at the time of purchase unless you have some kind of behavior biometrics. And even then you have to define the parameters and have to have quite a bit of data to be able to know you know, what this looks like, what a legitimate claim looks like, and then what a illegitimate claim looks like. Similar to what Matt Vega was talking about last week, right? Sometimes it's more important, especially when you're using behavior biometrics, to know what a good legitimate customer looks like more than a bad one. So, you know, doing that first is super important. Um, having categories and having, you know, just data that you're able to track and able to trust is super important and the first step to reducing refund fraud. And then, you know, have a method to flag and identify fraud claims that weren't legitimate. Just, you know, reading through Telegram ads and seeing your company's name isn't enough. Just knowing, okay, people are doing this to us isn't enough. You need to know, well, what does it look like on your, your side? How many orders has spend what is the amount because when you're going out to prosecutors you really do need to put a bow on these order or on these cases just like Eric talked about in both episodes you do have to do significant amounts of the work for them but that's so that they'll select it and that they'll take the case and that's really the goal and so if you you know, really do the investigations and you're able to tie millions of attempts or millions of dollars of losses to this one group or this one person. And you're able to really simplify how they did it, what they did, how you know it's them, etc. You're gonna have a much better chance of that case being taken to trial and that person, you know, really getting consequences and having to pay restitution and everything else if you do some of that legwork first. But you also need to be able to explain it to your company internally so that you can get resources. So that's why all these things are important. You need to designate one person or or a team, depending on the size of you know your company and the resources you can get to tie fraud to each other, to investigate it, to really get as many of those pieces of the puzzle as possible together to make a compelling case for law enforcement and then for prosecutors to take it on. And those are just some of the steps that you need to take in order to start going down this road. But I think, you know, if you're at the stage where you're just trying to get some resources around this, going to leadership and saying, hey, look what the biggest companies in the world are doing. They're getting hit even worse than us. And they're investing in this. We should be doing the same thing. And, you know, also saying if we put effort into this and if we do it the right way, then we'll be able to prosecute too. And that will greatly reduce the number of people who will want or even be willing to try 
to commit this type of fraud against your company. Uh, A lot of times they're using their own information for this type of fraud because they are using their own payment methods and because companies haven't been doing anything at all. So, you know, I don't think that these cases are going to be as difficult to investigate or to prosecute as traditional payment fraud. So that, you know, is one thing, but it's because it's still ramping up. This is a really pivotal time to be able to say, nope, don't mess with us. This is what we're going to do against it. So I wanted to make sure that I highlighted that as much as possible, because as much as this fraud tactic has really caught a lot of retailers off guard and has been really difficult to address because it's not the same point of compromise as payment fraud, because the traditional payment fraud tools just won't work to identify it. I think a lot of people have kind of written it off and said, oh, this is just too hard. And that's not the case. It's not impossible. So that is where I'm going to leave it for today. Uh, Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I will have a great guest for you on Thursday's episode. And I will look forward to speaking with you more then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.